Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent podcast and video stream dedicated to the American Wrestling Association. My name is Chris Tubbs, and we have got a very, very special episode planned for you guys. Uh, we are going to be joined by the widow of the legendary uh, bruiser, King Kong Brody, Barbara Goodish. She's going to be joining us in uh, just a minute. But before we get to her and all of the fantastic uh, conversations that she's going to catch up with her friends, uh, Mick and George, let's bring uh, let's bring these guys in. And guys, uh, I have to uh, I have to admit um, that I am excited about uh, about this week. Uh, let's go ahead and get the promotions out of the way. Um, you see it up there, Lip Bridge Brewery. It's the uh, best beer, best fans. There's the uh, you see IPA right there. Try and get it in front of me. Give me that. You like it? Here, hold on. Once again, he doesn't share. Oh shit! <laughs> Good. Got it all over. Well, that Good. sucked. Um, I, and we've already started, so. <laughs> My wife's going to kill me. Oh, that did not go well. Oh, God, my wife is going to kill me. I got beer all over. You know what? Could be worse. Uh, we're going to keep rolling with it because that's what we do. Got a roll of toilet paper. I got beer. We're good. We need a um, new producer. Yeah, you, you, need, you need one that's sober. Um, uh, go to liftbridgebrewery.com. They've got swag. Uh, they've got merchandise. And by the way, we're going to be doing our first live show there coming up on June 11th. We'll tell you that in about a minute. Uh, we've also got Soda Stick. You can see it, uh, my skull hat, my Metrodome shirt. Uh, I got blown out of the Metrodome. I'm not going to stand up, but trust me, it says Metrodome. And, uh, Mick, you've got your uh, Met Center hat. And uh, Soda Stick, it's a great place. Uh, get your swag. Check them out at sodastickco.com. Use the promo code UNLEASHED, 15% off. Guys, I'm going to let you guys do your thing because – I got to go clean up the beer. Otherwise, I'm going to have to get a, a third wife and I can't afford another divorce. So that being said, uh, I know we got a very special guest and uh, go ahead and uh, get to it, Georgie. I know that you're really excited. Well, you know, this week, everyone, we've talked about the 80s, the early 80s, the mid 80s and the AWA. And there are names that come up all the time, Hulk Hogan and the Road Warriors. But there's one name that just has enamored the fans he was able to grip the audiences, and he had a presence in the AWA like no other wrestler and the impact that he left and the legacy behind him. And there's a long story behind him and his life. And I started thinking, you know, we, got, we've got, we can't get King Kong, Bruiser Brody, but the next best thing we could reach out to Barbara Goodish, his wife, his widow, and she has been so gracious in my conversations with her. And we've got her here with us this morning. Good morning, Barbara. Welcome to AWA Unleashed. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. And it's great to see you, George and Mick and Chris in the background. So thank you for having me on. We're excited for it. You know, having Frank Brody, he was King Kong in the AWA. Right. Bruiser. Maybe you would tell a story about that? Yes, I'd love you to. Well, you can tell the story. You probably know more than me. I I know because there was Dick the Bruiser and Bruiser Brody. And how can you have two bruisers? So I know there was the match that whoever lost, lost the name Bruiser. So sure. hence, King Kong Brody. And it was interesting because um, 
Vern Gagne in the AWA, he was very, very careful about that. He usually only wanted one wrestler using the name at a time. We had crushers that had to give up names and things like that earlier. And uh, we couldn't have two King Kongs. So King Kong Mosca was here earlier and he left a couple of years earlier. And then definitely out of respect for the bruiser, Vern and, and bruiser were good friends. So it was he was King Kong. But, man, he was King Kong. He was huge. <laughs> well, well, it was, a really, it was a really good name because uh, King Kong was such a popular movie. So yes. there was a lot lot of advertising you could have with a King Kong, two yeah. King Kongs. Who's yeah. the best King Kong? <laughs> well, when, when, when King Kong Brody came into the AWA, you know, the immediate impact that he had not only because of a national presence, he was one of those guys in the select few back in that era where on the national newsstand magazines, he had the names of Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and the Road Warriors and Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody. He was he was there and it was uh, just a special time. So when when Vern brought him in, I mean, the AWA really did pop. I mean, that's that's an understatement. <laughs> I know, and I a name has come up, and maybe there's a story there that you can tell me. I think I've got the right name, if I can remember. You have to remember, this is, we're talking many, many decades ago. The Masked Marauder. Masked Marauder, yes. Uh, Masked Marauder, okay. Was that a name? I don't know the story or anything. But well, the, there, were masked, mask? there were Masked Marauders. Um, Brody used not here but he used the under a mask he was red river jack i remember red river jack in, in texas uh mm -hmm. for fritz von eric and i think that was related to a loser leave town thing or something bruiser brody left right. town and then he you know came back as red river jack and the fans knew who he was but the referees and the promoters were never able to figure it out George, do you know that when, you know, Frank had been here and then he left and then he came back yes. and he attacked Greg Gagne under a mask. He came into the ring with a mask. Like, he's got the beard hanging out halfway under the mask yep. and the long hair, like, you know, yep. surprise who this is. But the mask marauder part of it is Rod Trongard doing the commentary for the AWA. Apparently, they didn't tell Rod, what do we call this guy? So Trongard says, what do we call him, the mass marauder? I'm not sure what we call him. <laughs> go. So, you know, yeah, it's, uh, there's been a lot of mass marauders, but in my mind, Frank was the <laughs> mass marauder. Okay, so I knew there was some story. I just saw that, but I wasn't sure, you know, because of the mind. So thank you, Mick, for telling me about that. So oh, yeah, absolutely. So it was a mass marauder for maybe one or two matches. <laughs> okay. Well, that was one of the first angles, you know, break or injuring Greg Gagne. And, I mean, in the AWA, that was almost sacrilegious because you never went after the, the owner and the champion's son, Vern Gagne, and it started an immediate feud. You know, and, and Frank was so good because he got associated with Adnan Casey, Sheik Adnan Al Casey. Right. And his interviews were so believable and so real and so intense when he said, I work for the Sheik. I do what the Sheik tells me to. Well, you know, this this has the Sheik telling him to do anything and everything, and he's <laughs> doing it. And, and the, it just got over so well, really. 
Barbara, I have to ask you a question as long as we're on the, the topic of Vern Gagne and promoters. Let's start with Vern. Um, it, it, it's kind of incongruous that Vern, who was such a stickler, everybody does it my way, period. There was such controversy almost when Frank came into the AWA territory because Frank's reputation well-earned was that he didn't take any nonsense or any guff from any promoters. And I know that there was a time where, you know, he and Vern were butting heads a little bit. Did Frank ever talk about Vern Gagne specifically in his AWA time? No, I think he enjoyed working for Vern. Because after you get things straightened out, I think it was a, you know what I mean? Oh, I see a picture. I think it was a mutual, you know how? Because Frank was for the business. He was yes. for making money and he was for making money for himself, making money for the promoters and just making money and making the crowd wanting to come. Because yeah. I know he had many matches with Greg, Vern's son. Yeah. And I know even Greg has told me, you know, when you went in the ring with Frank and you listen, he he could make a match out of anybody. So, yeah. you know, so if they just listen and I know that even uh, Greg has said that he had some really good matches considering the difference in the size. I know he's uh, mentioned to me about some of the good matches he had with Frank because he didn't know how that would go over. And maybe that's when Vern kind of, you know what I mean, because he. They had good matches, and that's all what it's meant to be about, is to have a good match. And it doesn't matter who your opponent is, you can still have a good match, regardless. Well, you had so two I think there was maybe ended up a little mutual respect. Absolutely. And I, I think when you talk about Greg and Frank, you have two ultimate professionals. I mean, right. Frank, to me, was one of the most believable characters ever in wrestling. Uh, yeah, he had an aura about him that nobody else had. I, you know, even a casual fan, you're scared of this guy. You know, when he was doing the the heel persona, and Greg, on the other hand, would sell his rear end off for everybody. So it really was magical when those two were in the ring. I mean, it was just it, I loved it. I loved their feud. Well, right. and it was the classic feud of David and Goliath, too. Yeah. I mean, right. that's that's an age-old story, and that's what that was. And as I said, so, I'm, you know, what I mean, he did. So I remember him talking about Greg, and I remember him talking about Vern, and there wasn't any bad. I mean, I know <laughs> Frank did not leave some of the territories in the, in the best way, so to speak, <laughs> but he knew. Like I just said before, he knew how to make money and he knew how to make the fans want to come back because he'd always come home and say, all I want to do is to give the fans the best night of their life. And yes. for them to leave and think, it's it's got to be real. Because mm -hmm. even as some of the matches that I've seen of Frank's, it's like, how do they do it? How oh. can they make it? And these were the old days, as we know, old school wrestling. Yes. Which old school wrestling is nothing like the new school wrestling today. Right. Oh, yeah, I remember when you know because that was the first time that that I really remember watching wrestling and and 
I remember watching Brody, and, and I mean, I was scared because here's this big, tough. Like I believed that he could destroy anybody in his way, and I, I thought, like from that respect, I just thought it was one of the first memories that I have that he was a legit guy that, that I could feel nobody could stop him. So, and and I mean, you look back at it now, and I'm like he was so good at what he did like so so good at what he did and i think part of it was it was a business to him bruiser brody was a business like anybody going to any business he put a hat on he was bruiser brody when he left the house when he came back to the house when he came out those out the doors of the airport when i picked him up he put his hair back and he became Frank Goodish. He became a dad. He became a husband. And he learned how to distinguish the two. He never did become, he didn't lose his real identity. And I think that was part of it too, because it was a business to him. And especially in Japan, and sometimes even here, because you have to remember back in those days, <laughs> there was, it was before cable, it was before so much, especially when he went to Japan. He would bring back the matches from Japan. They'd give him the matches, and he would sit there and critique himself, and mm -hmm. say, "Well, I could have." And some of the matches too that he had videos in the states, and he'd say, "Well, this could have been done better, or this could have been." He he actually critiqued himself, so he did. He did a little research before he would go in a territory of the people there to find out what are their best moves. What what can I do to go in there and make the best match with these people? because I'm going in cold because I don't know, you know, who I'm going to be with and I'd like to know who I'm going to be with so I can do the best I can. Frank is kind of universally recognized as a really smart guy. I mean, a smart businessman, um, tremendous mind for professional wrestling. So, you know, when you, when you talk about Frank doing his homework before he went into a territory or in Japan, I think that's kind of legendary. And I just wanted to talk about the, the Japanese stuff for a, a little bit. Some of those videos from Japan, I mean, Frank was a wild man here in the States. But in Japan, and I know, George, you're going to yeah, have some questions about Stan Hansen. But I, you, you watch the fan reaction in Japan when Frank would take a match up into the seats Okay. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. These fans would scatter like ants, and if they didn't get out of the way, Frank would make sure they got out of the way. Uh, it was just a whole <laughs> Some of the greatest videos are from Japan. You know, I used to say after I'd seen some of the things, I said, aren't you scared that you're going to hit someone with that chain? Because sometimes we'd take off into the crowd with this damn chain, you know, going round and round. And he looked at me, and, and in his, that voice of his, he said, Barbara, I'm six foot five. My arm is another 12 inches, whatever. Then I got the chain. I'm in Japan. <laughs> and that was it. He said, there's no chance I'm going to hit anybody because <laughs> it just looks so bad with him swinging this. I thought, what if, it, what if he inadvertently not meaning to hit someone? He said, think about it. I said, okay. I understand now. It's safe. Yes. Very uh, Yeah. When the Mick chain. mentioned there you go. That, there you go, the chain. When uh, Mick mentioned Stan Hansen, um, you know, their tag teaming together and their friendship is 
relatively legendary. Um, I had Bill Watts said one time that he was originally the one that put them together very early in their respective careers. Frank Goodish and Stan Hansen teamed in the Mid-South, and they were actually um, United States Tag Team champions there. But Bill Watts said, I eventually had to split them up because each was so good, they were hurting each other by being together. And did you have any feeling for that? I mean, is that something that Frank agreed with? And and yet they still stayed friends and teamed together in Japan, for sure. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, they met at what West Texas State. Yeah. And Stan will always tell the story about when he when he went to West Texas State and they said, well, we're going to you know, this will be your room. This will be your roommate. And he said, I walks in and here's this messy side, some guy in bed and just clothes and things everywhere. It was Frank. <laughs> and that's how they met. They were they were roommates at West Texas State. So they go back to the very beginning. And even today, Stan and I are still in contact. We're still, you know, this is it's gonna be thirty-four years this July. Right. And Stan has always kept in contact. When Jeff was young in the school holidays, I would he would get on a plane, which terrified me, send him down to Stan's. They would go on these road trips with Stan's uh, kids and everything. So, yes, Stan has always been a very, very important part of Frank's life and my life. And, yeah, they were just a friendship. But as you said, they were too strong together. People wanted to see them against each other because they were too strong. There's what in Japan, I mean, they were the strongest tag team right up until the time, I think, the Road Warriors were going to be the next push for in Japan, if I remember. Because, as I said, Stan and Frank were starting to get old, and the Road Warriors were young warriors back in those days. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it never happened because that was right about the time that, you know, everything happened. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, just real quickly as an aside, I'm thinking to myself, talking about Frank wielding that chain going through the crowd in Japan. Can you imagine if it would have been Stan who couldn't see a foot in front of him? Oh, <laughs> I know. Stan going in there. It would have been like a pinball game with, with people. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. <laughs> you know, no. I, just, just I know Stan always gets that about his nest on, you know. I, I, you know, you talk about your relationship with Stan, and it, it brings me to a thought. A couple of years ago, there was the Bruiser Brody Memorial uh, out down in Illinois, in the Missouri, Illinois area, with Frank, uh, uh, you know, being idealized by everybody. And, of course, your good friend, Herb Simmons. What kind of a relationship did Frank have with Herb Simmons? It's a little bit off the AWA path, but Herb is just one hell of a guy. Oh, Herb, you know, just before everything happened, that Frank had opened up a uh, a kind of like a company called Brody Athletic Management. He was going to go. This was with Herb and Larry Matisak. And they were starting to do little shows around Illinois, Missouri, because Herb is a promoter. Herb has been a promoter for 40 years. In fact, not to get off the subject again, so I remember, I'm going to be for another Bruiser Brody Memorial on May the 14th with Herb. 
he has one. We haven't had it for the last couple of years, but every year he has a Bruiser Brody memorial show. So, in fact, it's the 14th of May. I'm looking forward to seeing Herb and everybody that's, you know, going to be there. And now I've got trapped. Now to go back. So Herb and Larry and Sam Muchnick, this all started through Sam Muchnick because that's how he met Herb and Larry was when he went to the St. Louis territory. And that's another one. I know it's not the AWA, but that was a great territory. In fact, I think we're going we're gonna to go back and forth. I know change. One of the people there who I know was didn't didn't in uh, Winnipeg at is it Tony Condala, the Frank oh. versus uh, was it Bulldog Bob Brown? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Also in there, and I heard a little story, uh, Mick, that uh, between you and George, you, this was when I think one of the first times you met Frank or something that you were given a uh, a cho chose who you wanted to interview and you chose Frank. Can you tell me how that felt? Well, first of all, I got to thank George because George, not only did he suffer through Bulldog Bob Brown, you know, kind of salivating all over him during an interview, but George actually said, which one do you want to interview? And I was like, are you kidding me? You're asking me which one I want to interview, Bruiser Brody or Bob Brown? And uh, George graciously let me interview Frank. And I I was shitting bricks, Barbara. I got to tell you. I mean, I was like so terrible. Oh, look at that. <laughs> look at that. Oh, my God. This, this actually, this was about a year later. This is uh, about 1987 fall or so. Frank came into uh, Minneapolis to do a, a one-shot deal. My God, look at you know, it's a wonder the way I looked there. No, he didn't just strangle me. I, I wouldn't have blamed the guy. But um, what I was going to say, God, Mick, you look you, you look like something there, Mick. Wow, isn't it unbelievable? And and even there, this is a year later, and I'd already met Frank and worked with him. I'm still crapping my pants there. But when I first was going to interview Frank up in Winnipeg, and I'm terrified, and I said, Frank, you know, what do you want to talk about? And he said, I'll follow your lead. And it was like, what? Yeah, he says, yeah, you, you, you've been doing this for a while. I'll, I'll follow your lead. And to me, that was just like, oh, my God, the, the, the walls of heaven opened up. And the interview was great. Frank was great from start to finish. Couldn't have been more cordial. And that was my first big time interview. And I am like so eternally grateful. Not only, and even the Shire for letting me have the interview. <laughs> you know, I want to tell you that uh, when we had the opportunity up in Winnipeg to do, we were doing the TV up there, Mick and I, and obviously we that was our main event. Bulldog Bob Brown, who was a Canadian native and very popular, and of course he was a roughneck, a, a brawler, but he's going against Bruiser Brody. And in the dressing room, the locker room, um, both guys, I, I have to tell you, were extremely uh, pleasant to be around and very cordial. Uh, I, I did regret giving Brody to Mick because I still am unable to get the stains out of the tie and the suit that I wore because Brown spit all over. The man couldn't say hello without spitting all over you. But <laughs> their matches were actually very good. They had a couple of them up there against each other. And 
And I agree, both were very good and cordial to us. But Frank was beyond nice, certainly not the character or the persona that you saw or heard on interviews and in the ring. So that was a pleasant experience for both Nick and I. Okay. Now I guess I better go back to Herb. Oh, you mean we got sidetracked with Nick and George? Wait, <laughs> hold on. The beer that's not on my hold on. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to spill it again. No, so Herb, as I said, so yeah, that, that was someone else that he got along really good with was Herb and Larry Matisak. And they were beginning to do their own shows. This was just when I think it was Vince Sr. had died. It was in, in the transition back because this was, what, 1987, 1988, just before, you know, he left us. And he was starting his own promotion. We had bought a had bought a wrestling ring from uh, Blanchard, Tully's father, Tully Blanchard, because you know he was the San Antonio territory, and okay. we were living down outside San Antonio at the time. Joe Blanchard. Joe, thank you. So we he had bought an, a wrestling ring, and he was setting it up. We had a big barn on our property, and he was setting it up. And what he was doing, he one of his friends. Uh, introduced him to one of the professors at the at the Texas University in San Antonio. And what they were going to do was going around, talking, set up a wrestling ring at the school. This was when DARE, you know what the DARE program was? The drug program they put in the schools back in, back in the uh, 80s? Yep. And they were going, the professor was working on a little skit. And what they were going to do was going to go around the schools with this professor and set up a ring at the school and do a skit about the dangers of drugs for the D.A.R.E. program. And you think that these kids would listen, would actually take notice of that? You've got someone like Frank talking about that and doing what he does. They would have listened, whereas you send somebody else in and you know how kids are. Like you go in and talk to somebody and they just turn a blind eye on you or sure. they're fair because we're older than them. <laughs> so they figured out that this would be a great way to get a message across. And we also had a 45 acres kind of out in the country a little bit. They had a little stream running through it. And he was going to have a boys camp every summer, take disadvantaged boys out to this property, let them fish and hike and do what they want and have like a boys, a boys camp, which sometimes all it takes for these children that are in the process of maybe going the wrong path, have somebody that they know care for them and do something. But as we know, this didn't quite, he had such wonderful ideas. Also, they were going to, he was also doing some little shows with Herb Simmons. And I, I think there was Terry Gordy, Hacksaw, there were several people that were already going out. He had some really good people because they knew. See, Herb was one. When he said, this is how much you're going to get paid, Herb never bucked. He was 100%. When Herb said something, he meant it. And he knew he would never have any trouble. Like, he would never have any trouble with pay or work or anything like that. So he was very trustworthy, like he is with me. I mean, I've been going down there, like I said, to this Bruiser Brody Memorial show that he has. So they're actually getting their own little organization together and with some really good people. I mean, some really 
good names. And of course, that all just went by the wayside. So yeah, he had so many ideas because he knew what he did in the ring, it was going to come back and bite him because you can't do that to your body. When I see some of the things that he does, I don't know how he did. I have, li I have never lifted my leg that high in my life. And he had that big boot. And I was like, how does that? My little leg can only go up halfway. And I was like, how did he do that? So, and he, he knew with, as we know, with some of the uh, old timers today, I mean, it's hard. Their bodies are wrecked for what they did in the ring. Their bodies are wrecked. And in Japan, as I think you said, Mick, they worked in Japan. I mean, that was work. And I remember one of the few matches that I did see with Frank was the, Jap uh, the Japanese came over to St. Louis and Frank had one hour with Ric Flair. And sometimes the people still talk about that today. There was a one hour because the Japanese were filming it. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that Frank could actually work in that way because it was a whole different work sure. because it was the Japanese style of wrestling and not and not the, the other style of wrestling, the old school wrestling. You know, there's a, a St. Louis program actually there. There, there it oh is. Oh my God, Flair versus yeah. Courtesy of yeah. George Shire. You know, I, I I I did have a question here, Barbara, that I wanted I wanted to ask you, um, which I stopped that screen there. You mentioned that he had all of these ideas about like helping you know disadvantaged youth and and all of these things that he wanted to do to to reach out to the community. Was there ever any concern that the persona uh, on screen would conflict with like his real life values at all? Because at that point, it you know it, it seemed like the you know the quote unquote the kayfabe. You still had to kind of keep that tight lipped. You know, because people have talked to me that I have met at the, some of the events that I go to, the CAC Waterloo. You know, I've gone to a lot of these different events. And I will meet people, and these were kids, and they actually tell me stories about seeing Frank at the airport. And they said, I was just a kid, but I remember seeing this. It was like a monster to me, and I'd hide behind my dad's legs and look. And if Frank saw that, he would come over and kind of bend down and talk to him. And they actually said, you know, and then even as a child, I realized you can't judge a book by its cover because he was so quiet. And anyone that met him on the planes, they've come back and told me, this he is just such a polite. Well, that's why they called him what the intelligent monster in Japan, I think it was. <laughs> he, had the, he had the name in that because they realized that what he is in the ring is a whole different person. I know it was, you didn't talk about wrestling back in those days because as, like your, your shirt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, everybody was keeping it very, but Frank had a way that they thought it was real. But then when they talked to him, it was like this whole different. He was such a quiet and he did things with kids and he went to different events and he did things that people saw the other side. And it was like, well, yeah, he has these two characters. But you have to remember, too, sometimes the wrestling people are a little different than regular people back okay. in the States. <laughs> you know, so that, I think, was a little different. You had the wrestling, like the wrestling people didn't really you know what i mean you know, you know the way the way i look at that is is i i know there were fans you know they'd obviously think that pro wrestling wasn't real 
but those that believed in it and believed in the characters and, and in Frank's character, I think they were able to say, and they did to themselves, you know, what he does outside the ring, he's calm and collective and, and very nice and quiet. But when he gets in the ring, it's for all the marbles, it's for the championship, or it's to get revenge on an opponent. And this is real. Mm -hmm. This is what he's doing to earn his money. So it means business. He's got to be aggressive. And I think there were people that were able to separate that. I, I, definitely, I definitely believe that because yeah. as, a, as I go to these events, it's really strange because so many people will show me tattoos of him on their body, big tattoos on their yeah, that's, body. That's wild. That's you know, and, and it's like, and then I have some other people that come up and they'll tell me all about them. They said, I've read your book. I've done this. And I'll ask them their age. They weren't even born when he sure. died. They, they hadn't even been born yet. And yet they're following him because of YouTube, because of all these other programs and everything. And to me, that's just absolutely incredible that he has this whole new fan of people that weren't even born when he was uh, working. The, the thing about Frank is that as as people that weren't born, they are enamored with that, that uh, era of wrestling where, as I said earlier, there was a select group of guys that just will stand the test of time. Hulk Hogan, Bruiser Brody, right. you know, they're, they're, they're right up there. I mean, whenever you talk wrestling to young and old, people know them, remember them, and if they don't remember them, they want to know about them. Let me ask you a question, Barbara. You had alluded to earlier that you had seen a match, a Japanese match in St. Louis. And I was curious, um, were you able on a regular basis to actually see Frank wrestle? Did you do any traveling with him? Or when he did come home and you said he'd come in, take his Bruiser Brody cap off, and he was now Frank British. Um, but you've seen him come home with the, the bumps and the bruises and the cut up forehead and all that. What was that like on a personal level for you and for your son to see your husband and dad come home? It, well, yes, he came home pretty beat up sometimes, especially on his forehead. But he'd always say, uh, <laughs> this is a, a red makes green, if you know exactly. what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. You know? And I think it was after the first few times, I think it became normal. I mean, I hate to say that. No, I, think I understand. It became normal, and no, I didn't get to see many of his matches. I was a stay-at-home mom, wife. Okay. Except for that one in St. Louis, I think a couple of times I'd travel. One in St. Louis, and one it was in New Orleans. Had a big match in New Orleans. The rest of the time, it was maybe a few. If he when he was working for Fritz or Joe Blanchard, he had a few trips where he could drive to from the house, mm -hmm. and then we would take a road trip. Me and Jeff would take a road trip with him. And a lot of times, though, like if it was like in Corpus Christi, me and Jeff would go to the the, uh, the waterfront, he would go to the match, and then we'd meet after the matches. On some of the smaller ones, it was, you know, this is the wrestling was not a, not a real uh, luxury, you know, business. He would have to change in the car just about there was no dressing room on some of these smaller events oh, sure. when he worked for joe blanchard but mm -hmm. it, it was a job it's like you know how you take any job there is this was this was in the beginning before he became more you know famous he'd do a few jobs around the text another thing was he did it because he could be home he could go to work take us for a road trip come back home so really 
I really didn't go. I know a lot of the wives travel with their uh, with their husbands and that. He was into saving money. Saving money was on the road eating green beans and tuna. Barbara, like he I, used to always I, carry. I, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to make a quick reference to what you were talking about, uh, the projects that Frank was going to be involved in. Uh, before everything happened. Um, it's fascinating to me that the relationship he had with Larry Matisic and, and uh, Herb, you know, had, had blossomed to that extent. I, I was not aware of that. Um, and I just want to say that it's, it's, it's heartwarming and it's heartbreaking at the same time. When you hear the kind of a guy that Frank was away from the ring, um, and, and you talk about the boys camp and things like that. I mean, that is that is really touching stuff. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, before I went to my next point. That's phenomenal. Um, talking about Frank's persona, and this kind of goes back to the, the Winnipeg days. I was absolutely enthralled. You know, you, you talk about the quiet guy away from the ring or what have you. We'd be in the locker room. And he's chit-chatting with everybody, and oh, you know, quiet. Half the time, I couldn't even under hear him because he was so soft-spoken. But as soon as that door opened from the locker room to the main arena, I could not believe the transformation in this guy. It was just like instantaneous, and and you had the Bruiser Brody or King Kong Brody character. And was this the same guy that I was just talking to a minute ago? He was absolutely phenomenal. See that that's exactly because sometimes he said, sometimes he said, I'm sitting there by myself. I'm in such pain. He said, all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting there being yourself. And then the doors open, just like you, just like you said, Mick, the doors open. And it was like the adrenaline and he became this character. Yeah, you're right. Said everything else disappeared except it's a job. Okay, I've got a job to do. Put everything else aside. I've got a job. Get out there. And sometimes he said too, like when he'd go to the ring or in the dressing room, you know how he had some really weird, uh, <laughs> you know, when he did interviews, who knows what he was going to have in his hand. He's had light bulbs. He's had, what the, you know, anything. He said, I'd, I'd look around. I'd look around the dressing room or I'd look around. And if I saw something I could use, I would pick it up and use it. And in fact, Hacksaw, Hacksaw Jim Dugan, that was how, he, even he told me that. I met him in Charlotte a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, that was kind of the two by four. Because Frank had said, just pick something up. Picked up a two by four and the two by four today is still there for a Hacksaw. That's a, you know, Barbara, I, I wanted to touch on, you know, we, we've talked about how Frank would come home and, and be uh, husband and dad. And here you have Jeff at the time, your son, who was about six, seven years old. Um, wh what was his what was his perception of dad coming home and being, you know, bruised and battered and beat up and <laughs> scarred forehead? I know when I went to work, I put a suit and tie on every morning. And when I came yeah. home every night, I had the same suit and tie on and I was normal. But in Frank's case, um, you know, 
how was that for for Jeff? I, was it explained to him that Dad's okay and and it's not you know he's not really hurt or? Yeah, I think it, it began like I said it became normal. I think in the beginning. But as I said, as a child growing up with seeing your dad come home with scars on his forehead every time, it, it kind of became, oh, that's how dad is. Yeah, oh, that's that's normal. I think on that <laughs> photograph you're showing there's scars, there's uh, scars on his forehead. That was a fresh one just before Christmas. Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah, I think there's, yeah. I mean, look at that forehead. That was just bizarre. But I mean, but, was was Jeff able to go to school and you know tell tell kids that you know my dad's a wrestler and and did it work out okay for him in that respect? You, you know, the uh, teachers loved it. If Jeff had show and tell at school and Frank happened to be home, guess who he took for show and tell? He took Dad to show oh, and love tell. It. I love the it. The teachers loved it. Here's Frank coming to show and tell. The kids and the teacher just love sitting on, trying not to break those little tiny seats. Sure. So, so that was, so yeah. And when everything happened, uh, it was during the school holidays, of course. They, they called me, the principal called me from the school and said, you know, what can we do to make it easier for Jeff to come back to school? And all I said was, put him with, with his best friend. Make sure he's in the same class as his best friend. That's all that, you know, then he has somebody with him and they did that. So they were very, no, they, they loved Frank, you know, well, mm -hmm. <laughs> here he was, this big person. Here's my show and tell. So, nobody would, else had a show would and tell Frank like go in? Would Frank go into character on the show and tell or would he stay? No, he'd just be, you know, no, didn't want to scare the kids. Yeah. Well, boy, I'd have sure loved it in the in the second or third grade. That would have been. You know, you know, I'd go home so, that night and have something to talk about. Wow. It's kind of, you know, but the kids talked about him. I think he took his hair down. He didn't go back if I remember. I wish, wish those were the days that we had cell phones and we took sure. pictures and things like that. But that was before. That was way before those days. But, yeah, so if he was home, Jeff would go and I always kind of coached Jeff's little leagues team, whether it was baseball or, you know, he'd do all football, baseball. I'd be one of the uh, parents that would kind of coach the, you know, help with the little league coaching and things like that. So when Frank was home, he would always go hoping it was a match or something. So that's one thing. He tried to do the best he could as a father with not being home very often. And I think Jeff knows. And the one nice thing, it's just before this happened, we had had a vacation. He went off work and we went for a vacation in, uh, up at Six Flags of Texas. So it was really nice. He'd, he'd get on all the ro rides with Frank and, you know, and I think he sometimes remember. And I think the one thing with that was they went on something. It was, I can't remember the name. But it went way, way up high for like about 12 people. Then it stopped. And then it came tidal wave. I think it was named tidal wave. And then it would come shoo, down into water and the water would splash back. Well, I don't know if you know, but Frank did not really like heights, believe it or not. Even though he got on the top rope, he really didn't like heights. So here I didn't go on. It was a son, dad and son. You know, let, you have some good times. I don't have to be there because we do a lot together, me and Jeff. So it was like they got on the ride, it was about 12 people, you know, three or something, two, whatever, and they get up the top 
they went up, 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 up. And then it stopped and it stopped and nothing was going on. And I thought, oh, oh, here's Frank, scared of heights. Here's Jeff. Here's all these people that probably know him in Texas up there on the same ride. Next second I see people walking up the uh, emergency thing. The thing had stuck on the top of oh. this ride. And finally, and it was quite some time, they finally must have got it. We, you know, fixed it, which is, I wouldn't want to be on it if they're fixing it up on a ride like that. Finally came down. I think Frank was white. <laughs> he said, I had to keep my cool. He said, I couldn't. So here I am with my son and all these people, and I had to be this cool, and I am terrified. So that's kind of a memory that uh, Jeff has. It was, you know, one, well, one of the last memories, too, of everything. But it was nice that there were memories that last school holidays before sure. everything happened. You know, Barbara, you know, as you said, that was that's great that you can have that right before everything, you know, changed. But after uh, Bruiser Brody left us, can you give us a little bit of how that was for Jeff being a young boy and and yourself moving forward? See, when it happened, I didn't have, you know, Jeff was with me the whole time. Right. You know, I didn't quite make it to Puerto Rico in time. They they had called me and then I figured out, well, if he has to be in the hospital, I need to be there. I know he didn't like hospitals either. That was another thing he didn't like. I said, oh, well, and me and Jeff were partners. So there wasn't any question. My neighbor said, why don't you leave Jeff with me and you just go down and see what's going on? Mm -hmm. I said, nah, we're a partner. You know, we have to do this together so got a got a flight of course we got down there and of course it was too late and as as you know it was abby was the one that told me i'm coming into the airport waiting for someone to pick me up not knowing who was going to pick me up and abby is running as fast as he can to leave puerto rico that morning and he was the one that actually came up to me and told me that he had already passed of course then everything is that's abdullah the butcher abdullah yeah yeah abby yeah abdullah yeah which they had some, the both of them had some really incredible oh, matches. Man, yes. <laughs> yeah, and we saw them team in the AWA together too. Yeah. So, um, they're, they're hellacious matches against uh, Jerry Blackwell and very, very intense. Yeah. And then when we came home, because I told everybody, everybody said, you want us to come down? I said, no, this is this was a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. And I already know, you know, as I said, I spent time with the district attorney in Puerto Rico. He told me that they were following me. You know, they got me and for whatever reason, they were keeping an eye on me for whatever reason, which mm -hmm. I should be grateful. And uh, so I stayed down there as long as I could because I knew if I come back to the States and I don't have any paperwork, I can't do anything. So I had to stay down there a little bit longer than I really wanted to, but I got all the paperwork done and, you know, come back. And uh, my friend said they lived out of, not in San Antonio, they lived in the country. And they asked me, they said, well, you know, we have to get back to work. What, what can we do for you? This is just as I came back from Puerto Rico. And they had two kids. One was younger than Jeff and one was a little older than Jeff. I told them, leave your kids with me. You sure? I said, leave your kids with me. So as I came back to Puerto Rico, as I came back from Puerto Rico, I had three kids to look after. Three kids, 
kept the mind without the mind redirected because you got three kids you're going and it was good for jeff because he had two two children two kids two friends that he had with him and we were going everywhere you know because even after everything happened and that was the best thing because i didn't come home and just go into this which i would have happened keep Absolutely. the mind busy keep that mind occupied otherwise it can do all sorts of damage and situations yes, yes. you know and i always say and what i did every day i wrote down a list of everything that needed to be done and it didn't matter if i got crossed one thing off that list it was a successful day and not just you know just go into this funk and it's not easy but that was the best thing was having a house full of kids sure. to keep me occupied having to cook having to take them they wanted to go here they wanted to go there but it got me through the worst time possible that i would have had if it had just been me and jeff out in the country by ourselves it wouldn't have been the same so i think that helped jeff too yeah and I did, think, you, did you have wrestlers and promoters and people back here that were supportive of you and reaching out to you? Herb, Stan, Herb Simmons, Stan Hansen, Buck Robley, uh, you know, what other ones? There were a couple of other ones, but Larry, of course. And, you know, with Larry, he was the one that talked me into writing the book. You know, Very I, wrote, we're talking about. I wrote a book. I know, Tim. Well, I wrote a book. And there'd already been somebody else had written a book and it was nothing but even had things about the family and the family, it was not true. And so Larry said, look, you tell the story, your side of the story, I will tell the wrestling side of the story. Well, I know Larry was one of the most honest people alive. He, Larry. Larry Matisak. And this was, this was the book. Yeah, and a very good book, I, and I do have it, and I oh, recommend Brody. it to everyone to get it. It's a great read. Yeah, it's a, and that's it's the truth. It's a, nothing but the truth because it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it was real for me. You you want to put like, that up there one more time, Barbara? I'll get a full screenshot of it. I want to make sure. How can I do it? Perfect. Got it. Yep, yep, I've got it. And and, and that book is by Larry Matisic. With and, Brody. Yep, yeah, and me. We we co-authored. Very we good. Co-authored the book. Me and Larry, we co-authored the book. And I'm telling my side and yeah. he's telling his side. The two, as you said, the yin and the yang. Barbara, I you know I, I I'm sitting here and I'm listening to these stories about Frank. And it it, it really is, I mean, it, obviously it's heartbreaking, but um you're so candid about all this stuff. Um what a, what a trooper. I mean, bless your heart. You know, and I know you've been asked questions, the same questions over and over again for the last 34 years. But talking about, well, first of all, before I forget, I've seen a recent picture of Jeff. And I'm telling you, it's like a Frank Goodish clone. I've never seen anything like it. It's almost scary how much he looks like Frank. I know. You imagine putting some weight on and putting a beard on. Oh. It's the eyes. Frank had eyes that you knew what he was thinking of. Those eyes of his were so, oh. Jeff has the same eyes. It's like those eyes. It's got his dad's eyes. Is, like, Is Jeff as tall, as tall as Frank was? He's 6'4", so an inch shorter. 
Oh, he's but, just the skin. Just but, yeah, not, yeah not just an way. inch shorter. <laughs> just uh, a little guy. I, I, I wanted to ask you this, Barbara. You, you, you mentioned a little bit ago how even fans of the modern era, and I was at one of the Brody Memorial events in St. Louis, how fans of the modern era, even the kids that weren't born yet when Frank was wrestling, will go back and they'll look at his YouTube tapes and they're they're just engrossed by it because the guy, again, it's a believability thing. And this is such a different era in professional wrestling now. Everybody is kind of in on the act. The right. fans are in on the secret. But you go look at a Bruiser Brody tape and you suspend that disbelief for a couple of minutes. So his, his legacy is forever. I mean, no question about it. So having said that, we know about his wrestling career. We know about the in-ring legacy. We know what a tremendous performer he was. If somebody says to Barbara Goodish, what is the one thing or how do you want Frank to be remembered aside from a wrestler, a monster, what, what would you say? He was a really nice human being and he cared about people regardless of the wrestling. This is right away from wrestling. As you just said, he cared about people. He wanted to help people. But unfortunately, that didn't pan out. But yes, he uh, he was a he was a helper. You wouldn't have known that with the, what he did in the ring and everything. But no, he he wanted to do the best he could every day, and he thought ahead. You know, he thought about life after wrestling, and that's what he was already starting to do with what he was doing. What would we have would he have done if he didn't get into wrestling? I know he was doing sports writing for a while. What path would he have taken? You know, I sometimes think, especially with working with the professor and doing things like that, he would either be promoting his own shows or he'd be getting uh, getting into maybe politics. He was that good. You know, he had the gift of the gab. Oh, look at him. Look at him there. Mild-mannered reporter. You know. Yeah, very so, you know, and as I said, you've got to be a good talker to get into politics. You need to talk. So it would um, be interesting. We'll, we will never know that, but it would be. I sometimes think about that. I know he, he was having all these things that he was doing that he was, you know, I just think helping helping people. He was an amazing man. And I, I, I for me, I can't thank you enough. I mean, being so candid and people who don't know the Frank uh, outside of the ring and they listen to you, I, I people are just going to be absolutely floored by the kind of a guy that he was, like you say, the human being, you know, separated from the wrestlers. So I bless your heart. I just, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I more than I can ever tell you. And thank you for sharing him with all of us all those years. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I think he he wouldn't believe how he is perceived today after so long. So he did. He did give people something to remember for the rest of their lives. And that's why, like you said, I guess as people call him a legend, I guess he is a legend. And thank you all for having me on here and being able to share him with everyone. Barbara, I'd like to add to you had mentioned May 14th coming up with um, Herb Simmons. And I wanted to point out that on May 7th, a week before yeah. that, 
uh, the 80s wrestling are going to present you a posthumous Lifetime Achievement Award for uh, Bruiser Brody. And that in itself is quite an honor. You know, the fact that you say he's a legend, anybody that can bring a smile to our face, anybody that can bring up a pleasant memory and pleasant thoughts, they never really die. They're with us forever. And Bruiser Brody is. I mean, I'll tell you what, he definitely left a mark on me. I still picture him working for Larry Matisic at the Checker Dome when Larry was briefly promoting. And there's a picture in the program of Frank on top of the building with the letters. You talk about he didn't like heights. Well, he was yes. on top of the, he was on the almost the roof of the building putting the letters on the marquee. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm to- yeah, I know what you're talking about. have that program. But mm-hmm. definitely, I thank you so much for uh, coming on with us when I reached out to you. And it's been such a pleasure chatting with you off air, too. Well, thank, thank you so much, all of you. And, yes, May, May the 7th, it should be a good show. I, there's Bushwhacker Luke. There's Jake the Snake. I think there's Jesse Ventura. I think it's going to be a really big show up there. Where is it? The Menon? The Menon. The Menon it's uh, Menon. Uh, the Men in Sports Arena in Morristown, New Jersey. Thank you. Where it's taking place, May 7th. Thank and you. Before you go, remember what, what we said to each other the night that we saw that show in Las Vegas that Howard Brody comped us all to get into that, that show. You know what they say. You say it. <laughs> no, neither one of us will say it. Somebody's got to say it. Saying anything, don't worry about it. Oh, come on. I don't know. You're not going to tease. That that is something. (laughs) I remember that show. That was was quite a show. I'd never seen anything like it. All right. Well, thank you, Barbara, for for your time. This has been great. And uh, just to hang out for a bit, I'm going to get you guys out of the stream. We'll wrap it up and uh, we'll go from there. So, Barbara, uh, thank you, and we'll be in touch. Thank, thank you. you. I enjoyed it. Thank God you. God bless you. All right. There's uh, Barbara Goodish, Mick Karch, and uh, George Shire. And uh, I want to thank everybody. It, it, this was a great conversation. Like, I've never had a chance to to talk to her, but the stories are, are just, um, they're fantastic to remember. One of the most legendary and iconic uh, individuals, uh, Frank Goodish, uh, a.k.a. Bruiser and King Kong Brody. I uh, want to tell you real quick uh, about our sponsors. You can see uh, Soda Stick up there. If you're going to buy some swag, uh, sodastickco.com. Use the promo code UNLEASH for 15% off. And assuming you do not spill your beer like I did, you can always go to uh, Lift Bridge Brewery. Uh, they've got some swag. They've got booze. I mean, it's the official merchandise, the official beer of the AWA Unleash podcast. And uh, by the way, you want to catch us live, you got to put the information on the screen. First live show Saturday, June 11th at Liftbridge before Midwest All-Star Wrestling. Doors at 2. Uh, uh, doors at noon. Show at 2. Wrestling at 3.30. That'll do it for uh, for now. And uh, until next week, for Mick and George and Barbara, I'm Chris. Till then, so long, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>